Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. I try to learn something from every single one of my guests, and uh, I don't get to interview people who are in this field that much. Uh, we love learning about cities, communities, districts, states that are very pro-business and how to grow the economy. And the book that we're talking about today is called The Texas Triangle, an Emerging Power in the Global Economy. And so we have the author here today, Colum Clark. Thanks so much for being here, sir. Mike, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start off with this, uh, with the genesis of this book. What made you and a couple other guys get together and say, let's write a book about how the, the triangle of, of Texas is sort of the model to follow or what you guys are doing. So what started this? Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, first thing to note is I am one of four co-authors. Uh, we had a great collaboration uh, with uh, Henry Cisneros, Bill Fulton, and David Hendricks. Uh, Henry is actually known for having been a two-term mayor of San Antonio and United States Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, and we had a, a, a really a, a simple idea. Uh, we're all Texans. And we uh, observed that uh, Texas has been changing into something very different than people oftentimes uh, think of it as. Uh, I think there is still this uh, kind of old-fashioned uh, idea around the country, but even to some degree among Texans themselves, that we're primarily about ranches and oil wells and so on. And uh, <laughs> yeah. those things have played a large role in our uh, in our history, there's no question. Uh, but we wanted to tell the story of how Texas has turned into something very different, that Texas has become a big metropolitan state. What do I mean by that? Uh, the federal government classifies places as metropolitan areas or uh, rural small town areas. There's a couple other categories. Uh, but if you look at the, the per share of the population who live in metropolitan areas, it's actually higher in Texas than in the average state, higher than in most states. And, and moreover, most of the people in the state, two thirds of all the people live in just four metropolitan areas that are among the biggest in the United States, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Austin, and San Antonio. And our, our view is, first of all, we wanted to kind of hold up a mirror for Texans to maybe uh, to, to, to sort of look at themselves and their state in a new way. And among other things, hopefully that would inspire them to think about um, uh, kind of what we need to get right in the future to ensure our continued prosperity in Texas. Uh, and uh, I hope also to convey a story nationwide that Texas, uh, you know, we get sometimes get kind of a bum rap, uh, uh, you know, reputation wise out there in media around the country. And we wanted to convey that Texas, it, at least that the very large part of it that is in the within the Texas Triangle is turning into something different. So our idea of the Texas Triangle very shortly, Mike, um, the Texas Triangle is the mega region, as we call it, formed by the four big metropolitan areas of our state. It constitutes two thirds of the population of Texas and virtually all the growth. Got it. And so whenever I was there, uh, I was just surprised about how, number one, Dallas-Fort Worth, the airport is just massive, right? It's just such a hub. I think it's the biggest airport in the United States. And then whenever I was going to events, I had multiple events all in Dallas, uh, in the Houston area, <clears throat> and then um, Dallas- Austin and Houston. I think that's your triangle. Is that what you're talking about, right? And San Antonio as San well. Antonio. The southwest corner of the triangle. Got it. Yes. Okay. So uh, I, I found it fascinating. And I think I, I do share that sentiment. Whenever you first think of Texas, you think of ranches and oil fields. And it wasn't like that at all. So uh, when you wrote this book, I believe it was 2021, you were probably starting to experience the influx from le people leaving California and going east, most likely Texas or Nashville. I think a lot of people from ta Texas or Austin go to Nashville eventually. So that is true. Uh, I'm assuming it's changed quite a bit, but it's because of the policies they're in place. So what have you guys 
done there that really kind of drew in um, business and operations uh, from all over? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right, Mike, about the uh, movement of people. And uh, it's that people have been net moving into Texas from elsewhere in the United States for a long, long time. Uh, but it accelerated over the last decade and it accelerated more uh, in uh, kind of the 2019 period and then during and after the pandemic. Uh, so why is this so? Um, uh, uh, what we really argue in the in the book is that within the Texas Triangle area, and I should note, essentially, virtually everyone moving into the Texas, into the state from elsewhere in the United States is moving into the Texas Triangle, one of those four metropolitan areas. Um, so what draws them? Uh, I think what we really want to convey in the book is it, it's not, there's no one simple story, like there's one single thing we got right. It is that on average, these places got a lot of things reasonably right, and they didn't get anything so wrong as to mess it up. So some of the things we got right. Um, the Texas Triangle, uh, for going way back in history, of course, has generally had a pro-business, pro-commerce uh, approach in economic policy. Uh, it's it's go as far back as anyone can remember. I think there's always been the idea, every governor has always wanted to promote the idea that Texas would be a really good place to do business, to build a business. Um, and that's, that's just clearly true. Um, SMU, where I am an adjunct professor as a part-time job alongside my Bush Institute work, um, uh, has uh, a group of people um, uh, who have built a uh, an economic freedom index, measuring essentially to what degree is government limited, um, to what degree are tax and regulatory policies relatively pro-business. And all four of those Texas metropolitan areas score among the very best in the country on that metric. So it is undoubtedly a good place to do business. That's one thing. Uh, but that can't be the only thing. Another crucial factor is, is that it has been a, a place where people can pursue what what I would call relatively affordable, good quality of life. Uh, people, we, we live in a time, I would argue, Mike, when uh, the balance of power has changed between employers and um, just talented people. Uh, people can increasingly go where they want to go and employers follow them. Uh, because the, the 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 scramble for talent is such a such a powerful factor in business these days, uh, and people have been choosing Texas partly because it's been more affordable, just lower cost of living, lower housing costs, and so forth. Particularly than the coasts, the West Coast especially. Um, uh, but also, you know, cheapness alone can't be the whole story. There are other places around the, particularly the middle part of the country, that are plenty cheaper than the Texas Triangle. Uh, it's got to be reasonably good quality of life at a reasonable price point. Uh, and I think when you add it all up, the Texas Triangle metropolitan areas have been delivering that. Our one big disadvantage is the uh, temperature in July and August. Uh, if you've been here in Texas at that time, you probably yeah. might have regretted coming. Um, uh, but most of the rest of the time, it's actually temperate and quite good. Uh, but when you think about the things people are looking for, are they looking for, um, you know, reasonable um outdoor space? Are they looking for uh, good public safety, uh, for just good amenities, good, good, you know, stores and everything else? Uh, and the, all those things are there in abundance in the uh, Texas Triangle. You know, I think sometimes people say about uh, Houston and Dallas, um, um, it's a great place to live, but you wouldn't want to visit there. Um, uh, which is, you know, I, I, I personally think it's a great place to visit. I hope you'll come visit, visit me. Uh, but, um, but it really is a great place to live. People who come oftentimes who, uh, uh, maybe, uh, you know, came here for some kind of business reason and expected one thing, they're almost invariably positively surprised by just, just how uh, livable a place it is. One, 
Um, and, uh, you know, one last thing, I think that uh, another an, another factor that really determines the kind of the fate of regions and cities is to what degree are they creating and attracting a well-educated workforce? Because business won't go to a place where the education levels and the workforce readiness of a place aren't reasonably good. Uh, and, um, you know, and I think the Texas Triangle metropolitan areas, it's not that we're huge outperformers educationally. We've done well enough. But we have really been investing quite well in, for example, higher ed institutions. We've done some really good education reforms for K through 12 that have been lifting up some of our urban districts. But crucially, we've also been attracting talent from everywhere, everywhere in the world, everywhere in the United States and many foreign countries as well. Uh, and so when you ask businesses, can you what, what matters most to you when you choose a location? They say talent. It always is number one in their in their answers on that question. Um, and then if you say, can, do you feel where you can find the talent you're looking for in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, in Houston and Austin and San Antonio, invariably they say, yes, it's a great place for us. Well, my buddy lives in uh, Austin, so I've, I've visited him a, him a few times. And uh, I think he bought his property right around the 2000, maybe 2014 era. And uh he talked about the gentrification that was happening. And so mm -hmm. property prices were super cheap in the early two thousands. And obviously they just, they, they brought in a ton of, uh, companies that maybe hired, you know, had great salaries. So it probably had a strong workforce and it just attracted people. So what started that? How did Austin really become, they call it the blue dot for a reason, right? It's the only, it's the only Democrat run city, I think, in that area. Maybe I'm wrong, but they call it the blue dot because it attracts a certain type of uh, uh, person. And I guess that's coming from California. But um, what caused that and uh, and how has that changed that environment? Well, let me say let me say a little something, Mike, about the about political change in Texas in the Texas Triangle, and then I'll answer your question about Austin and in particular. Um, I think there is the idea that Austin is the is the kind of the the blue island and a red sea. Uh, I I think it would be more accurate to say that all of the core cities are at least uh, light, you know, purplish or light blue. Wow. Um, you know, in presidential elections, the actual city of Dallas, the city of Houston, and so forth, would will certainly go uh, Democrat. Um, but, uh, but I'd say if the other cities are kind of, and then, and what happens of course, is in the larger metropolitan area, you have a whole lot of people living in very purple suburbs, uh, and then rural and small town, Texas, the deepest of red. That's, that's our political complexion here. What's notable about Austin is if the city of Dallas and the city of Houston are kind of light blue, uh, Austin is deep, dark, powerful blue, very, very blue, um, almost California blue. Um, so why are people choosing uh, Austin? Uh, you know, I think uh, even amongst the, the Texas Triangle cities, uh, Austin has a, um, a kind of a unique package of offerings that aren't quite, didn't quite match to any place else in this part of the country. Uh, uh, essentially, if you were if you were going to be dealt a hand in the 2000, in the 21st century as a city, uh, you would want Austin's hand. Number one, uh, a the center of a, ma the, the headquarters of a major flagship state university makes a giant difference. Yeah. Every city that hosts one of those is doing well in the 21st century because they play such a large role in the economy. Um, number two, a state capital. State capitals, unless they're little, very tiny cities, which in a few states they are, generally speaking, have done well because, you know, government activity, it's recession proof. It's always there. It's tended to grow. Uh, number three, um, it has a, um, a, a cool factor that just very few places can match. 
you know, young people like places with a cool music scene with a Nashville. You know, it reminds scene. me of Nashville, Nashville That's for it. sure. I would, I would, I would argue like the places in the United States and at least the uh, away from the traditional coastal places that score highest for cool factor for sure. Austin and Nashville. Uh, I might throw in uh, parts of the uh, Raleigh Durham um, uh, Research Triangle area because that's there's a collection of universities and maybe there isn't one city there that has quite what Austin has, but the region has a lot. Uh, so those places, in effect, have had the whole uh, package, uh, and uh, no, a few other places can quite match that. So Dallas and Houston are doing very, very well economically. They, 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 we have great universities in both places, but UT Austin is 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 unique. Nothing else quite quite like it, and we don't have the state capital. We have wonderful restaurant scenes, shopping scenes, and so forth, but there isn't anything in Texas quite like the Austin music and bar scene. Right. How has uh... I mean, migration has always been uh, or immigration has been a significant part of Texas. But um, recently, obviously, it's in the news. How much is that going to impact the Texas Triangle? Do you see anything right now or you is, is anything alarming to you? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, there's so many so many things we could speculate about. I think uh, if I if you if I. Well, first of all, I'm plenty bullish, Mike. So if I say I'm alarmed, let's say I am watching some trends as opposed to highly alarmed by any of them. But if there's probably one trend that is top of mind um, as a long term worry, it's around uh, housing prices, housing affordability. Ooh, yeah. uh, so um, if we go back to the 1980s, 90s, uh, the Texas cities were dramatically cheap places compared to other big cities in the United States. That has changed. We have had very, very fast increases in housing prices. Uh, housing prices, you know, I'm an economist. Housing prices are always going to be uh, essentially formed by uh, supply and demand. Uh, we have had, generally speaking, in Texas, we have had pretty pro-growth housing policies. Easier to build new housing supply here than, for example, on the West Coast by a long ways. So the policies have been pretty friendly to growth, but the actual growth in demand has been so huge that uh, supply sometimes hasn't kept up, and we've we've seen um, really big uh, increases in prices. So, of course, when people make a judgment about what you know what's the relative affordability of different places, um, they're not just looking at the absolute increase in one place; they're comparing places, right? Uh, so, um, there's a good news and bad news story for the Texas Triangle. The um, the the good news part, uh, from our point of view here, is that there are plenty of other places in America that have also seen explosive increases in home prices, and the gap between, say, the Texas Triangle metropolitan areas and the major metropolitan areas of the West Coast is as big as it has ever been because um, there were also huge increases in prices in the Bay Area and in Southern California and so forth also over the same, you know, over the last decade. Uh, very recently, prices have come back some in some of the California cities and also in Austin. But on the whole, you can say that gap remains very, very wide. Uh, so if someone's making a judgment on housing prices uh, about where to live, the case for moving from California to Texas is pretty much as strong as it's ever been. On the other hand, there's a bad news part of the story. The bad news part of the story is that uh, it used to be Texas cities were cheaper places to live than many other big cities in the middle part of the country. Like, for example, Dallas would have been much cheaper to live in than Chicago. That has completely changed. Now, Dallas is more expensive place to live, live than Chicago. Austin, more expensive still. Uh, so actually, now, if you think of the, all of the metropolitan areas in the middle part of the country, the only places that are more expensive than Austin and Dallas happen to be uh, really, actually, the only one is Denver, uh, which has also been a pretty popular place for people to uh, move to. 
so uh, so we have lost an, a pretty significant edge there. And, you know, and I think the future of the Texas Triangle will have a whole lot to do with can we regain that edge? Can we can we figure out how to build the housing supply that we will need if we're going to maintain that, you know, that advantage and continue to grow? So that's that's a top of mind issue. We do raise a couple other issues in the uh, the, the tail end of the book, but that one figures prominently. Specifically uh, speaking about pro-business areas, I mean, I automatically think of Florida and I think of Texas right out of the gate. And when I think of that, I mean, it's 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 easy to correlate that with low taxes yep. and a, a, a judicial system or a legal system that protects the entrepreneur and is pro-business, pro-landlord, if you will. Those are the two that stand out. What else does Texas do or this the triangle do that really brings people in or brings businesses in and makes it a pro-business area? Well, okay, I agree with you that um, uh, being competitive in taxes is important. There's loads of evidence that people and businesses have been making location decisions uh, for many years and continue to do so recently uh, based on differences in in, in taxes. Uh, so that's a factor. But you know, I think it's really important to note that um, uh, low taxes alone is never enough uh, to, for a place to succeed. There are plenty of other places around the country that have very low tax rates and are not are not thriving. Very true. Uh, so that's- uh, High taxes. People still will not leave California because of the weather. So yeah, that's not everything, of course. Exactly. It's part of the picture. It's not the whole picture. So if we think of other things that are part of the picture, um, how about just how easy or hard is it to start a business or to grow a business? Um, uh, there's there are indices around that people calculate around the country that look at uh, different states, different different uh, cities for ease of starting a business, and they just always show the same thing. You can typically start a business in a Texas city in a handful of days. It might take five to ten times longer in some of the places on the coast. Just way way more regulations. If companies are looking to relocate and they're looking for a location. Um, what you oftentimes find in, uh, in in the Texas Triangle, particularly in some of the fast-growing suburban places, is you, you have the best business attraction efforts going on in the United States. You have really professional economic development operations that can quickly give, you know, give a business a great physical site. They have that's plug and play. They're ready to go, like roll out the red carpet. Uh, uh, it's, they're just super easy to deal with. If you, if you seriously contemplated moving a business to some location on the West Coast or in the state of Illinois or New York or someplace like that, uh, you would have a, a, a great many people in local government who would come up with a dozen reasons why they actually don't want your business there. Um, uh, and, you know, because it's going to gentrify the place, because uh, uh, maybe just because they fundamentally don't like, you know, capitalists or entrepreneurs very much. Uh, they'll come up with all kinds of reasons. So the ease of starting a business is really, really um, important. Um, labor market uh, rules, very, very important. Um, you know, for example, there, I mean, I, I wouldn't overplay this issue, but California has put through very large increases in the minimum wage. I don't, I'm not going to editorialize on what ought to happen with the minimum wage, but the difference in the costs of employing people are quite large now between uh, Texas and California. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of factors. Yeah, the, I think I just read that they're trying to propose a fifty dollar minimum, fifty dollar an hour minimum wage in California in certain areas. That is scary. Can you imagine being an entrepreneur trying to start a business and say, "Wait a second, you mean to tell me that if I go here, I'm going to have to pay three or four times, maybe five times more than anywhere else?" Uh, it doesn't make sense. So. You know, uh, one time I, I, I this really made an impression on me. This one experience I had, I was in uh, in the West Coast. I happened to be in Palo Alto, where Stanford University. 
is based and where a number of the leading venture capital uh, firms in the world are, are based. And it so happened I was actually trying to get to a meeting with a you know a reasonably prominent venture capital firm, and it was really hard to find the office. Like the address was, it was supposedly on a street, but you couldn't see the door in on the street. Anyway, I, I went into this store um, uh, and asked if they knew where this firm was, and it, it turned out literally the firm was on the second floor, right over the store. Okay. Uh, but the store basically just like the store owner just like rolled his eyes and said, we can't stand those people. You know, why are they here? Right. They weren't proud of them at all. And they were lead they were literally among the leading venture capital firms in the world funding innovation that is changing the world. And their closest neighbors were sort of irritated that they were there. So I really don't want to say ugly things about California. You got fantastic weather. I love visiting. Um, I've had, had many great times in California. But if, if a place has that kind of attitude towards business and business people, then, well, business people have choices. And when they come to uh, the Texas Triangle, really anywhere here, they, they really will receive a very, very warm welcome. And they always say so. I've never yet heard the business person say, you know, I had this, I, I heard the whole Texas stereotype. Supposedly it was going to be so friendly to business. And I got here and everyone was kind of, you know, not very nice to me and seemed ir irritated that I had come. Never heard it. Never once. Well, when you talk about the culture in Texas, I'm telling you, when I first started my business, I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We have a culture here in Pittsburgh, hard workers, union based, right? They're, it's just in our blood to, to kind of follow in those footsteps. So when I started working with people online, I realized that a lot of my clients were coming from Texas and there is an entrepreneur mentality that's instilled in them at a very young age. What is it? What, what is happening there? Is it just because of the culture or the freedom aspect to start your own business, live your own life, government stay out of my life. I'm going to do what I want and I'm going to protect myself. Is that the reason? The culture is clearly very strong. I think anyone who's lived in multiple places around the United States can sense it. They can they can feel it. Uh, I, I haven't lived in the state of Pennsylvania, but I've lived in uh, in Manhattan uh, for seven years of my life, and I've lived in D.C. Oh yeah, different. definitely. Um, you know, and I would say Manhattan was kind of an interesting. The culture was clearly so different. It was not hostile to business exactly, but it was like it was the it was a culture that was around that was centered on bigness gigantic financial firms, you know, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs and so forth, and big government, big, big companies across the board. It, it felt like a place where there, there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of space left for the small entrepreneur who wanted to, who was just scrappy and wanted to start something. I, I wouldn't say that was especially celebrated. It was very celebrated to be like a senior investment banker at a major firm. Uh, here, we like the senior investment bankers and the CEOs and so of major corporations. That's that's great. But I think for whatever reason in Texas, they're really they're, it goes very very deep in our roots. Like your what you, you what you described is that kind of that manufacturing ethos, doing making things actually you know with your hands as it were in Pennsylvania. Here, there's just this idea of uh, limited government, the the swashbuckling entrepreneur who goes out and makes something from nothing. You know, lifts themselves up. It's it's just in the it's in it's in the air and the water here somehow. But anyone who spends time here will say that is that's true. So give us a quick little recap of your life. What got you into this? What made you fall in love with this uh, this sector or this category of of entrepreneurship? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, uh, I, I spent many years in the uh, business world uh, before I, I came to what is now a second chapter for me, being a, an economist at a think tank. I lead the economic policy work of the George W. Bush. Institute. 
um, here in Dallas and also teach a class at SMU. Uh, but I, I guess I was always interested from an early age in, well, broadly speaking, just why things are the way they are in the economy and the world. But among other things, um, I, I was always very interested in in, in, in the, the economics of uh, geography and the, the question of uh, why, are, why are various things happening here and not there? Um, why do some places thrive, some places don't? Uh, why do people move all around? I just always found that very, very interesting. I actually spent a lot of time thinking about it as a as a business person, as an investor. Uh, uh, but now, now that I'm uh, an economist, I can think about it in um, economic policy terms. Um, and uh, and so it just it just really made sense to uh, being here in, in a, a Texan, born and raised. Uh, to um, to to think about this question about well, there's no question that Texas, particularly the Texas Triangle, is on a roll. It's had a very good um, several decades, particularly the last decade. And uh, just to try to dig a little deeper into why that is. Um, uh, so I've, I've had a chance to write about that in a lot of ways, and among other things, uh, the uh, opportunity to collaborate with my three co-authors on the book. They all come from different parts of our uh, of our state. They've all done very different kinds of work, but we were all fascinated by that same question: What is it that makes this place tick? And um, uh, you know, and I think that we, um, uh, I think we get we get to that pretty well in the book. I mean, I think we we rightly have a fair bit of history in the book that this didn't just come to be overnight, uh, that it may well be that we went from being a more rural state to a very metropolitan state, um, some, in some cases, breathtakingly uh, fast. Um, but the uh, the fundamental bones of the place have been the way they are for a very long time, and we wanted to understand that. It's just, it's just such an interesting story. Uh, as an economist, are you a Milton Friedman fan? Do you share? I am sentiments? a Milton Friedman fan. Yes. I'm absolutely a Milton Friedman I was just Love teaching it. him in my class to undergraduates yesterday. I love it. And so I guess you believe in what he believes, which I believe is that inflation can only be caused by one source and that's printing of money. So is that what you believe? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, uh, now, I think uh, if you want to talk about the inflation we've experienced, yes, absolutely. But uh, in this particular instance we've had, it really is uh, um, the Congress deciding to spend many, many trillions of dollars over what was an old baseline far more than could make any sense based on the, uh, the the COVID pandemic, no matter how challenging it was. And yes, we printed the money to pay for it. And predictably, that led to inflation. Yeah. So I believe, and quote me if I'm wrong, but uh, 80% of our money supply was printed in the past four years. Is that right? It's that much. It depends how you define money supply. But yes, if you think of it as like the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, the yes. kind of the basis of our money supply, Absolutely. Now, been what is that going to do for us? What do you what do you think is that what's going to what's going to happen in the next few years or maybe the next generation? I mean, there's is like a it's like a hangover, like Milton Friedman always said it was like a hangover. Right. It's great. Right out of the gate. You feel amazing. Everything is looking good, but there's a hangover coming. So uh, what do you think? Is yeah, let me let me uh, let me address that and maybe even try to bring it back to the Texas story. What do I think is going to happen? Um in the near term, I think that the uh, inflation monster, though not totally uh, defeated, is clearly been receding, um, and, uh, and and probably we are going to make our way back to more or less the Fed's two percent inflation target, or at least thereabouts. Um, I think that is going to happen because the Fed did finally, maybe a little bit belatedly, but did actually uh, respond as it needed to do, uh, and for a variety of reasons. Also, I think the uh, mammoth uh, spending by Congress. In the wake of the pandemic, and in the, in the over the last couple of years, has been at least somewhat slowing. 
so those inflationary factors are um, have to some degree reversed. But there is a really important long-term question. Uh, when you say like the, the monetary, basically central bank printing money is what causes inflation, uh, the question might be then, well, in the future, are, what, why might they print a lot of money? And there's one simple answer to that in the United States today, and that is that we have a gigantic fiscal deficit in Washington, um, uh, enormous national debt that is spiraling upwards at a at a, a kind of a, a remarkable and highly disturbing rate. And in the long term, finally, there's probably only one way to actually finance giant fiscal deficits that go on till the end of time, and that is through the central bank basically printing money and paying for it. Um, so if we don't wrestle our uh, fiscal deficit to the ground, put put the finances of the federal government on a more sustainable basis, then, uh, Mike, I would put it to you, um, uh, pe people will start to expect higher inflation again. We will have a long-run future that, that in which we do not have 2% inflation, but we have considerably higher than that. So that question is very much out there at the national level. Uh, but that brings us back to Texas because... Um, you know, a, a federal government that just plain spends too much money um, and runs giant deficits. Well, that's that's a kind of government that's um, dare I say a little bit out of control. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we're we're running a big experiment in America uh, about somewhat more limited government versus that is, is somewhat more respectful of private markets and private enterprise versus government that is uh, uh, intent on growing uh, dramatically in its powers and in its spending and so forth. Uh, and, um, you know, he, I, I think in Texas, it is very likely as far out as the eye can see, we will we will keep our limited government pro enterprise uh, tradition. Um, and uh, we can't we can't escape the, um, you know, the consequences of the, what the federal government uh, does in the future. That'll affect all of us here in the United States, wherever we live. But uh, um, I, I would say some places will likely perform a whole lot better in that future than other places. Um, among other things, we can make our own little contribution to holding inflation down by having competitive markets and a well-functioning private sector economy. And uh, I think we're determined to uh, to have that here in Texas. I believe the uh, removal of the, the gold standard by Nixon was one of the craziest things that could ever happen to the United States. I think that is um, instrumental in the position we're in today. So do you share my belief in that? And how do you look at even the Federal Reserve being created in 1913? So Creature from Jekyll Island, right? Have you read that book? Yes, I have. Yeah. So I, I look at that and I say, wow, no wonder war started happening right afterwards. So I kind of tie it all back to that. I, it's more of a simplistic approach, but uh, us having the Federal Reserve being created, devastating, but us being removed from the gold standard, even more devastating. So what do you believe? Ooh, this is a big topic, Mike. Let's see. I think on first of all, I, I teach a class on economic history at SMU uh, to uh, uh, mostly college juniors and seniors. It's a lot of fun, uh, and we've been talking about all these topics, so it's all it's all top of mind, along with Milton Friedman. Um, uh, you know, in a li little tiny bit of American history in nineteen in the nineteenth century, for much of that century, uh, we ran a big experiment in uh, not having a central bank. Uh, and, and, and we had something called the, the the first bank of the United States that was established um, uh, on the advice of Alexander Hamilton when he was the uh, uh, nation's first secretary of the treasury. But under Andrew Jackson, we uh, killed off the the, nation, the national bank, the Bank of the United States. And then we had about 80 years without one, during which time some of the European countries were building central banks. So we, we ran an experiment. 
Um, it's a, it's an interesting time to go back and look at because we had such a different banking sector when it wasn't, in a sense, um, centered on a central bank. It had good in it. It had bad in it. We had a whole, we tended to have a lot of uh, financial crises, but we also had a lot of economic growth. You know, it was kind of a little bit the Wild West, but all in all, the country succeeded. So all I can say is it's an experiment with uh, arguments either way, depending on what one uh, likes today. Then we got to 1913. The reason we created the Fed is because in the years immediately prior to that, I think there was a general sense, particularly among like Wall Street leaders, that not that the, the cost of not having a central bank had started to become pretty significant and that we should have one. However, we, there was a kind of founding vision there that found the very fact of having 12 regional uh, regional banks within the Fed. The idea was to decentralize the power to some degree, to not have like one all powerful set of decision makers in Washington, D.C. And I think that was a really inspired vision. Um, you could say it's not entirely uh, come true because probably the uh, powers that be in Washington have grown much more powerful in the system and the regional banks less powerful than was originally intended. I kind of like that original intent. I tend to have it be a pretty strong wherever wherever you can show me highly centralized power versus decentralized power and competition. I'm always going to go for the latter. Um, the, uh, the issue with the gold. So, so, you know, I'm glad we have a fed, uh, the feds made some really significant mistakes with the great depression, with the inflation of the seventies. I think recently there've been some pretty significant mistakes. There've been, there's been some good times too. I, all in all, I think it's good that we have a central bank today. Uh, as for whether we should back the dollar with, uh, gold, um, again, something I've studied a lot <laughs> historically, uh, Mike, um, uh, I would say the, 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 objective of the gold standard is a good objective, which is to uh, create stability in the currency and stability in prices. That's a 100% a good objective. One challenge with the, the actual real world gold standard, the way it existed, and here I'm being an economics professor here, so bear with me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it is that um, if, you're if you're trying to back all of the currency with gold, then you face the question, is there literally enough physical gold? Um, and one thing that periodically would happen in the late 1800s is there would be long stretches between gold discoveries and there would not be enough gold. And when there's not enough gold, since all the issue of dollars was backed by gold, there would be um, inadequate growth of the money supply and there would be deflation. So that was, uh, you know, that, that others will argue with my my interpretation of those events, but it was generally at the time considered to be kind of a challenge. Now we have an economy that is many, many times bigger than it was then, and the total amount of gold stocks held by all the central banks of the world has not gone up nearly as much as that. Um, so there is fundamentally the issue of, um, of uh, you know, can you maybe, if you're going to try to make the currency more stable over time, which is an objective that I think is a good objective, um, it probably would take more today than just plain gold stocks. Uh, you'd have to have some additional mechanisms. Uh, I think there are a lot of ideas out there. I mean, this is getting away from gold standard, but like, for example, the idea of the, what we call the Taylor rule, the idea that, that monetary policymakers should have a clearly articulated rule, like this is how we perform, this is what we do in response to this or that set of circumstances, rather than just we're going to get together and, you know, we'll do whatever we're going to do. Uh, uh, we're going to be kind of unpredictable. Um, I think that is a uh, kind of a modern day version of trying to achieve the same the same goals. So uh, last question I have for you, then, um, with the printing of money over and over and over, uh, you're starting to see people fight back with the crypto. And you also see other countries starting to 
uh, get together and create their own um, currency that's back, what BRICS it's called. So yep. what do you think is coming down the pike? Do you believe that crypto is going to eventually become more sought after and maybe more trusted than the dollar? Maybe not now, maybe two or three generations from now, but it's the start of something. So, uh, And then are you afraid of the BRICS that's being formed? Because I think that you're starting to see it come to life and it's only a matter of time. What are your thoughts? I think that, uh, like most economists have thought about it a lot, I think that the United States benefits in many ways from the international reserve currency status of the U.S. dollar. So by, by which I mean that the dollar is the main currency that central banks and governments around the world uh, hold in terms of their, their the mix of their foreign exchange holdings. Um, so the and, and there's a simple reason for that. The dollar is the most effective vehicle around. It, it, it's by far the dominant currency in which international trade is invoiced. Um, it has the deepest, we here in the United States have the deepest, um, most liquid um, capital markets. So it's, it's just a better place to buy and sell you know, assets. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why the dollar's uh, dominance has continued. I think when you think of the um, the long term, I think you're absolutely right to point to two or three generations, Mike, as opposed to what's going to happen, you know, next month or next year. Um, over the long haul, I guess I'd make a couple points about the uh, the dollar and alternatives that might be out there. Uh, one is that I think all history teaches that um, the, the the country that issues the what is it, the dominant international reserve currency of its time is generally the kind of the preeminent economic and geopolitical great power. Uh, so essentially, as the United States goes, so goes the dollar. If we do a reasonably good job in our country of managing our, you know, our affairs and addressing our problems and continuing to sustain a reasonable pace of economic growth and we outperform other countries, then as long as that goes on, probably the dollar continues to do to to be the, the main um, you know, currency for international trade and international reserves. Um, if we blow it, then so will go the, the dollar status. Um, I, I think in particular, the explosively rising national debt will raise questions in the future that we've already been talking about today, you and me. Um, uh, if expl an explosively rising national debt means that we will print dollars with abandon, then uh, people around the world will rightly come to doubt the extent to which the dollar is a good store of value, and they will turn to alternatives. Uh, there are political reasons why the BRICS countries are looking to try to reduce dependence on the dollar. Among other things, uh, the Chinese Communist Party wishes to it to build China into the world's dominant geopolitical power. And there would be a great prestige factor that comes with making the Chinese renminbi uh, the dominant currency rather than the dollar. So they would like that on geopolitical grounds. Also, the United States has been imposing uh, a sanctions regime on the Russians. Among other things, we've frozen several hundred billion dollars in Russian uh, dollar holdings. And so they, not surprisingly, don't want the U.S. government to be able to get its hands on their money. Uh, so that uh, naturally kind of motivates them. Uh, so there are political reasons in the near term. Longer term about crypto, um, my simple take is so far, the first generation of crypto, um, uh, I think uh, it's been an interesting experiment around blockchain and so forth. I don't think that it's firmly established itself um, on along any of the sort of the traditional uh, definitions of money, uh, you know, as a store of value, it's been very, very volatile. Obviously, um, it's certainly not a, a unit of account or medium of exchange in very much actual, you know, uh, commerce today. So, so far, too early to uh, declare victory for any part of crypto. Um, in the very long term, my own sense is that um, we will build on the technology. You know, one thing they, they always say is that is that uh, the early pioneers oftentimes wind up kind of uh, 
you know, in, in the dirt. And it's the, uh, the, the, the followers, the, the ones who are the smart followers who um, improve on the first model. So somewhere out there, you talk about two or three generations. I mean, maybe crypto uh, 5.0 or 10.0 or something like that um, might be um, a very different kind of asset that has all the good of today's crypto in terms of just how tradable it is and the good of the blockchain and so forth, uh, but addresses some real world problems around uh, money, uh, not just the store of value, but also the medium of exchange aspect that it actually en enables more commerce to occur. Uh, and uh, when we crack some of that, uh, those challenges and the and those, you know, version 5.0 um, uh, crypto tokens become just fundamentally more useful, like the use case grows really, really strong, yep. then the challenge to the dollar and other traditional currencies will probably become stronger. So it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, I think that if you buy it now and hold it, your grandkids will really enjoy the benefits of it is the way I look at it. We won't, I don't think, maybe, but uh, it's a buy and hold uh, asset in my opinion. So um, also, I did want to ask you, you sound like a very pro-capitalist guy, and I love that, and you're teaching the youth. That's great. I've been on a lot of calls with people who seem very communistic, and they're educating our youth. So is there a book out there that maybe you recommend to your students or one that you had that has changed your life that you recommend to our audience? Hmm. Let's see. Um, uh, well, first of all, just as a as a kind of a, a basic understanding of economics, anything written by Milton Friedman. <laughs> yeah. All right. Good. Um, I like so, that. Uh, I've read numerous, and they they've all they've all been in a sense life changing. Um, Rand, is, I'm sure you're an Ayn Rand fan, right? Yes. There's a uh, there's also a book uh, that is it's not so much about free markets versus the state, but it's just a it's just really interesting. Uh, the economist Robert Gordon from Northwestern University has written a book called The Rise and Fall of American Growth. So it is really all about economic growth and the power of growth to change people's lives for the better. Uh, it's a story of long term progress, but it's also a story with some near term uh, warning signals. Because he argues that we've done a number of things that have caused economic growth to uh, to slow more than it really needed to in 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 our generation, uh, and there's a need to address a number number of things around that. So that's a really interesting long term take on um, uh, on kind of the history of our our country over the long haul and its future. So that's that's quite a good one um, as well. But I, I read a great many economics books. So uh, oh my gosh, don't get me started, Mike. Well, guys, you can check him out. Uh, you can go to bushcenter.org. You can find him on there. It's J.H. Cullum Clark. Um, is there another website or social media channel people can find you on easily? I would say the best place to find me is the uh, the website of the George W. Bush Institute. Uh, and um, and I hope people will uh, check out some of the some of the reports I and my colleagues have been writing about uh, uh, how to build economic opportunity and prosperity in our country. Uh, and around the world. It's a, it's a, it's the major focus of our work here. We work on it all the time. Um, and I hope people will check out the Texas Triangle too, because uh, what's happening in our state actually is pretty exciting. I think there's lessons for every place. Uh, and I think that uh, the Texas Triangle is going to loom large in the U.S. economy for the for, for many decades to come. So I hope people will, will check out that as well. Yeah. If you guys Google him, he's very easy to find. So uh, check him out. Pick up the book, The Texas Triangle, and uh, Cullum Clark. I really appreciate your time, man. I love talking to pro-capitalist economists, and uh, you obviously are well-read. So thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thanks so much, Mike. It's really good to, uh, to visit with you today. Thanks for having me. Remember, guys, a million-dollar book will lead to a million-dollar life right on.